Martin Luther called James a right strawy epistle. He didn't have much time for James. And as I think about that, I think I know a little bit of the reason is that um, Luther loved theology. He loved the deep thinking that was necessary to interact with what the Bible says. And James probably was just an annoyance to Luther because he's just out there. He just puts clearly um, some very basic ideas and very basic commands. And so James is a wonderful letter for us. And even though there was debate in the early centuries about whether or not it should be included in the New Testament, we happily include it in the New Testament because we find just nuggets all the way through James. And while Luther might say, ah, write strawy epistle, we will say, yeah, okay, but actually it's quite practical for me. So the little piece of James that we're looking at today um, is another way in which James echoes Jesus. So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount cautioned us against judging. He said, don't judge or you'll be judged, plain and simple. So uh, James kind of picks up on that and says, yeah, yeah, about judging, um, I have something very clear to say to you. And the background of all of this seems to be a church kind of in conflict or a church that um, has quarrels and fighting because that's the language that James uses. Where do the quarrels and fighting come from among you? So presumably, there is that kind of a culture in the churches that James is writing to. And we would ask ourselves, well, were they really that kind of Christians that made up churches that you know, then an apostle type had to sort of write to them and say, would you people stop fighting? Um, I remember coming out of college, looking forward to being involved in church. And the one thing that I was a bit apprehensive about was church meetings, because I'd heard stories about church meetings. And uh, the stories were not um, happy stories. They were stories about fights and quarrels and so on. And so I realized that in actual fact, churches are like every other gathering of human beings, and fights and quarrels come along. Happily, in all the years of ministry, I've never had a church meeting where there's been a quarrel. I was in a church in Vancouver, and the church around the corner, um, whose pastor became a good friend of mine as well, had a time in their experience where they had fights and quarrels. In fact, the newspapers in Vancouver, the province, um, recorded a meeting that was held at this church where the police had to be called to break up a fight. Can you imagine a church meeting that they had to call the police to to break up the fight that had broken out because of the dis disagreement that was going on? I, um, I love the law, and when I come to this little couplet of verses, thanks, Ian, um, it, it brings me back to thinking about the law and enforcing the law and judging in the context of the law being set. So in James chapter 4, verse 11, he says this, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against his brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. The two things that James says you're not allowed to do are speaking against one another and judging one another. 
they're very plain terms. Speaking against is, is the actual word slander. So he says, don't slander one another and don't judge one another. So slandering would kind of come second in the process. If you first of all are judging someone, then you might turn around and slander them. You would speak against them, perhaps not to the person himself or herself, but maybe to a friend over coffee, and you may just say, hey, did you hear about Susan? Did you hear about John? And you just say a word. Sometimes it comes in the guise of a prayer request. For your prayer, here's what I heard about whoever. Um, uh, I for a while was a pastor where we had a lot of lawyers in our church. And I used to love lawyer jokes. In fact, my one friend who was a lawyer told his lawyer friends they should come to church because they would hear good lawyer jokes if they came to church. And then he would warn me that he had a lawyer friend coming and so I should warm up my lawyer jokes. I finally had one lawyer come to me and said, you know, your jokes are funny, but I'm a lawyer and I want you to know that I'm a good lawyer. And I'm offended by you making fun of lawyers. He was just really kind of chiding me, and he was a great friend and great help. But I thought, you know what, that's right. I'll, I'll stop making lawyer jokes. Hard though it was to stop making those jokes. Lawyers, the law, judging, all of that comes back into the milieu of a church or churches to whom James is writing. And again, we come back to the question, well, were they the kinds of Christians so different from the kind of Christians we are that you would have to be warned against quarreling and fighting? Here's a question that comes to mind as I think of all that. Should we go back to church after the pandemic? Now, I'll, I'll try to sort of connect the dots for you. There's a lot of talk going around about church not being necessary. Maybe some of you who are watching from the couch are nodding your heads and saying, yeah, I'm looking forward to just coffee on the couch Sunday by Sunday. This is just fine for me. But should we come back to church? One of the concerns that's being raised throughout North America anyway is the, the imposition of shutting churches. So that's one of the things I referred to earlier. And we need to be careful not to say that we think we're being singled out. If we're not, um, if there's proper closure and it's for public safety and so on, then we get through all of this time and we say, so what will it be like when we can go back to church? What will it be like to go back to normal? What will it be like when the pandemic is over? And as I say, there are several people that I talk with who say, I'm not going back to church. I, I really maybe needed a reason not to keep going to church. Or maybe there wasn't a good enough reason to keep going to church. So quite frankly, I don't need church. And church leaders and pastors are wondering about what the church will look like, whether it's going to be a virtual gathering or a physical gathering. And so the question is, should we go back to church or not? Maybe when we talk this morning about churches that have fights and squabbles, that might add some fuel to your fire. And you say, well, I don't want to go back to where people judge and condemn one another. Um, 
I did have a while where another staff member would often say to me before a church meeting, I wonder who will pull the pin on the grenade today. And what he meant was that there was usually a person who would ask the awkward question. And church meetings have now become very polite, so we, we don't have the fights that calls the Vancouver police to break us up. But someone will come and say, <clears throat> I have a question, and you know the person knows the answer, you know why the person has asked the question, but the question is asked, and it's awkward. And we all say, oh my goodness, the church is so difficult. I've often wondered why the church is so difficult. I've often wondered why people need to have power and recognition in the church. Why is the church so significant that people need to be important in the church? Well, the answer to that is that the church is a community of human beings. It's a community of sinners. It's a community of people who live life in the real. The people that go to church are real people. And the struggles that people have in all of the areas of their lives show up again in church. And sometimes they are given kind of carte blanche to bring all of their foibles, all of their biases to the community of believers. And so you ask, well then, so why should I be part of that? Why would I want to go back to somewhere where I have to watch fights or be part of a fight? Well, we need church because it's the only way that God has decided to gather his people in the interim between the leaving of Christ from his ministry here and his return. God hasn't said, okay, let me give you several choices. You can join a rotary club. That'd be a good thing. You can join a sorority or a fraternity. That would be great. You, you can join some other kind of a club, a reading club, any one of those things, God might have said, you could do any of those. It's just important to be with people. But what Jesus said was, I will build my church. And he said, the gates of hell will not be able to stand against it. The church of Jesus Christ is God's plan for the way that his kingdom is introduced into this world. Um, we are called individually uh, to serve missionally, but we are called as churches to gather together, to be together, to be the community of Christ. There's no place like the church. In the best sense, there's no place to be like the church. And honestly, in the worst sense, there's no place like the church. But that's a good thing. Because it's good that there is an opportunity for us to work out the darknesses of our human lives and even of our spiritual lives. And so in a church, we get to be real people with one another. We get to gather together face to face and talk face to face and argue face to face, struggle face to face, disagree face to face. So what I'm talking about is the church that Jesus had in mind when he said to his disciples, okay, I want you to go and make disciples of all the nations. What Jesus meant was that they would plant, develop churches, gatherings of people who come under the name of Jesus in fellowship to grow and become and to get done 
what God wants to get done. One of the great provisions of, of this serious time has been that we ask ourselves, well, how should we have church? And the answer probably is, we don't need to have church the way it was in many of the program kind of aspects or dimensions. We don't need church to be a great show. We don't need church to be a great attraction. But we do need church to be what it was intended to be, which is about real people struggling together, growing together, becoming together what God has for us. And you can't do that without other believers around you. You can worship God in nature. You can worship God on a walk. You can worship God by the ocean. But Jesus has decided that he would come and he would be the head of something he calls his church. And we are called the body of Christ. And we are the incarnation of Christ until he returns. That means we have to have church. And we finally say we will have church not because we're told to have church, not because church is necessary, but because church is God's great provision for people to move along in their discipleship. So that's a long invitation for you to come back to church. So everyone that's in church this morning is looking at me and they're feeling like Susan. They're on top of the pile looking down the others who didn't come to church this morning who are on the couch. Shame on you. Not at all. But as James goes on, he, he gives his rationale. He says, you have to stop speaking against one another. You are real people in, in a real community, in, in real contact with one another. But the way that you interact with one another should not be to speak against one another. So James is presuming that they do. And if we were honest, we would say, yeah, we do. We spend our lives comparing ourselves, judging others, and maybe we even get to the point of slandering them. We say negative things about other people, and for whatever reason, we are feeling something positive about ourselves by saying those things about other people. And James says, what are you doing? Stop speaking against one another and judging one another because when you do that you're not only judging one another but you're judging the law you're setting yourself above the law and you're not allowed to do that so what does that mean to set yourself above the law it sort of has as caricature as people who um, interpret the law so if we go to society, we will find courts. We will have various levels of court. We will have various stations of um, responsibility in the court systems. We will have judges. We will have supreme judges and all the rest. And all of it is with an attempt to take something that is codified, something that we as society have decided is our common law, and those people interpret that law, and they do it carefully, they do it in community, and then the interpretation of that law is, is applied into the lives, into the cases of people who seem to be at variance with the law. James says, who gave you your law degree? 
who made you the one that's above everyone else? Because there's only one person who can actually describe what the law means, and that's the one who is the architect of the law, and the one who is actually going to judge. So at the end of the day, um, you will not stand before Christ and have other Christians um, vote on how well you've done, because it is not their business. You will stand before Christ, and he will have an honest, loving look at the life you've lived, and he will make comments on it. And he will allow his grace to wash over all of the things you have done or not done. So there will be the cross in front of all the things we have done and not done. Because when all is said and done, it is the grace of God, the mercy of God, that gives any of us merit. And so whatever we have done, it is only um, for God to say to us, I was happy about that, I wasn't happy about that other thing. And we will happily agree with God and say, yeah, you're right. You've been able to gaze into my heart. And you've been able to describe what was in there. And you have done it with the righteousness that is yours, and yours alone, that adheres to the standards of the law. And Jesus has met all of the requirements of the law. So at the end of the day, we will say, it was a journey, wasn't it? to try to figure out the law, to understand we couldn't keep the law, and to receive the great news that the grace of God had forgiven us for not being able to keep the law. And in the meantime, James says, so stop judging one another. Stop determining that this person does or doesn't keep the law, or what the law should mean or not mean to this person or that person. And not, not just the law in terms of a codified set of things to do, things not to do, but the ethics that we live by, the morality that we live by, the teaching of God's word that we live by. It is not our job, any one of us, to be the final arbiter of how well somebody else is doing in keeping that. So as I, as I dig deep into that, I ask myself, what am I thinking when I judge or speak against someone else? I mean, what, what's going on in my head that allows me to make a comment or allows me in my heart to make a judgment about somebody else? Because it's not my right. It's not my place. Well, I think there, there may be three things that are assumptions that are in our minds as we speak against one another and as we judge one another that would be kind of good to get out of the way. Um, there's a lovely idea. It's called the fundamental attribution error, which is a complicated little phrase, but it's, it, it, it's very helpful. That fundamental attribution error is like this. When somebody does something that we don't approve of, we, we judge them when we may speak against them. Now, if, you, if we back up and, and, and realize that I might have done the very same thing. But when I did it, I didn't mean it. When I did it, you didn't understand what was going on. When I did it, it wasn't my fault. But when somebody else does it, I say, there's something wrong with you that you did that. There's something bad about you that does that. There's something stupid about you that does that. 
So I walk along the sidewalk, and I come to a crack in the sidewalk, and I trip on the crack, and I say, stupid sidewalk. Then I watch another person coming, walking along. She trips on the same crack, and I say, what a clumsy person. What's the difference? It, it's the fact that we do not measure other people the same way that we measure ourselves. And we attribute to somebody a character deficiency based on their behavior that we would excuse on our own behavior. And you watch if you don't catch yourself doing that, that when you easily can come to a conclusion about someone's character by what you've seen them do, you could allow yourself um, the room for excuse that say, yeah, but you don't understand. It's different when I would do that than it is when you do it. And when we're honest about the things that we judge others over um, and come back to ourselves, we would have to say, well, what am I doing trying to sort out who's better and who's worse? So when Jesus was talking about all of this, he said, so here, here's the way you have your life set up. You have a law, and you press that law to the wall. Do not murder. And so there you go. Do not murder. So watch around the communities. Anybody murdering? If they're murdering, they are sinning. They are breaking the law. And you feel good about that, don't you? You're able to judge other people to speak against them. But I tell you this. If you hate somebody in your heart, you've already murdered them. You go, oh my goodness. So he understood the fundamental attribution error that while I may excuse myself, I will not excuse someone else for the same behavior. Jesus said, you've heard and you agree and you make all kinds of case law around not divorcing. Um, well, let me talk about that. You've heard, don't commit adultery. Well, let me talk about that. If you have looked on a woman with lust in your heart, you're already an adulterer. So you see how he's evening the whole thing out, and if, if we would listen responsibly to him, we would say, oh, okay, I get it. I should be really slow to judge somebody else because I don't see what I ought to see. The three things that I assume that will get me into trouble and will make me a, a slanderer and a judge. The first assumption is that I assume that I know the facts. When I see you do something, I assume that I know all of the facts. I've told you the story that Stephen Covey tells about a subway train where he sees a father with children who are out of control. He assumed he knew the facts. He assumed that the facts were that this was a father with no control over unruly children and that the father should really get his act together. And when he had the courage to speak to the father, the father responded by saying, I'm sorry, I know. But you see, their mom just died and they don't know what to do with themselves. It's an extreme example, but it's something that is very common to us that we assume we know the facts. Whereas we usually don't know all of the facts. And even if we do know all of the facts, 
um, we won't know everything that is beyond the facts in, in terms of the dimensions of, of an activity. So the first thing is, I assume I know all the facts. The second thing is, I assume I know what's in your heart. I assume that I know why you've done the thing that I think you ought not to have done. And so I will elevate myself and I will become the judge and the slanderer because I assume that I know in your heart was a darkness that led you to do this thing or the other thing. I, I've told you before about uh, a situation not unique where a person came to tell me about something that another person had done to her and when I went to the first person, already having decided in my head that this first person was a rogue, I discovered that what happened at the hands of this first person had already happened to him before. And I was left in this conundrum to sort of ask, well, who's the perpetrator here? Because it, it, was, it was a cycle of violence and abuse but it didn't start with this person or even the person before that person or the one before that person. And you end up saying, oh my goodness, this world in which we're living, the, the fallenness of our relationships needs to be front of mind. And so I, I can't assume that I know what's in your heart. I can't assume that I know why you said what you did or why you did what you did. And so what I need to do is say, since I don't know, I will defer to the one who does. I will defer to the one lawgiver and law meter and say that he knows what's in your heart. I don't. And I will give you, by the grace of God and by the way that God develops my character, the room that would say, I cannot presume to know what your heart was doing that led to this activity, led to this thing that, that I think is a mistake or a sin or whatever. First assumption is that I assume that I know all the facts. Second assumption is that I assume that I know what's in your heart. And the third is an assumption that I would not make the same mistake. I assume that I would never do that until the situation comes around and I find myself doing the very thing that I assume I would not ever do. And I have slandered you or judged you because you have done it. There but for the grace of God go I. Needs to be the, the slogan in our lives because no matter what it is that we see someone do, there but for the grace of God go I. Um, I might think, I would never do that. I, I could never even think of myself doing that. And yet you, you do. The silly thing is when you're a, a child, you, you think about your dad and you say, when I'm a dad, I'll never do that. Or you're a mom and say, when I'm a mom, I'll never say that. And then you become a mom. And sure enough, the words that come out of your mouth are the very words that come out of your mom's mouth or your dad's mouth. And you think, oh my goodness, I was my dad right then. I was my mom right then. So very simply, we realize that we better be very careful about declaring that we would never do this or that. Because in a similar circumstance, we might in fact easily slip into doing the thing that we think is a mistake in, in someone else's behavior. So again, James says, 
there's turmoil going on in your community. That's necessary in a real community. If, if we as a church are a, a place full of nice people, we're probably not being the church because we're not really all that nice, are we? At least some of us aren't quite that nice. And the church is the place to be less than nice. It's a place where we ought to be able to say to one another, I'm not doing well. I'm not doing well in this area of my life. I messed up in this area of my life. And, and I need to tell you that. I come here on a Sunday, I look as though everything is just fine, and it's not. And that's okay, because the church is not a place where people come and pretend that they are perfect and then judge others based on this false image of themselves being perfect and then able to be lawgivers. So we need the church to be the place where we can come and we can say, okay, it's okay here to let your hair down. It's okay here to be yourself. It's okay here to say what's on your heart. It's okay here to ask whatever questions you think are forbidden. It's okay to ask them here. And we need to be the kind of community that says it really is okay. So if you ask a question on the way home, I will not say to my husband or wife or friend, can you believe what Orville asked this morning? Right, can you believe that? That kind of conversation is a violation of what James is talking about. Do not speak against one another that way. Do not judge one another. Be careful about the assumptions that lie in back of the sort of prejudices that come in your thinking and in your relationships and in the way you measure one another up. The fundamental attribution error says if you do something I will call it a character defect. If I do it, I will call it a mistake. If you do it, I will judge you. If I do it, I will forgive myself. Be very careful, says James, because you don't get to set the rules, and you don't get to assess whether or not this law needs to be applied to this case. You are not the lawyer. You're not the judge. You're not on some hierarchy of determiners of the good in other people. You need to come to yourself in the mirror and say, there but for the grace of God go I, and by the grace of God I won't, but also by the grace of God I will be forgiving and loving and merciful to those who do trip up and fall. There was a Promise Keepers rally several years ago, and they had a, they had a wonderful slogan. And the slogan comes out of the, the scene of, of um, armies and wars and so on. And it, it, it simply was a little, um, you know, um, chain thing that a soldier would wear, and it says, leave no man behind. And the point was that if an army is invading or if there's a battle going on, whether they're Marines or whatever they are, if, if they come under fire, they will not leave anybody behind. And so, you know, in, the, in American culture, for sure, 
there's this determination to bring home those that have, have fallen on the battlefield. The church would do well to take that as a slogan. We will leave no man behind. No matter how you fall, no matter what fire you come under, um, we will not be your judges. It has been sadly said that the church is the only one that shoots its wounded. The truth ought to be that we are the ones who leave no man, no woman behind, because we know the grace and mercy of God, we know our own hearts, and we do not set ourselves up as judges. We do not ever speak against one another. To know that someone has your back in that sense is a great sort of thing to tuck away in your mind. To know that when whoever talks about you to someone else would only say positive good things. They would never say the darker things or the sad things of, of your life. Um, to know that that's the way we speak of one another would be good. That we speak well of one another. Do not speak against one another. Do not judge one another because there's only one lawgiver and judge. Who are you to judge your neighbor? So if we have been properly spanked this morning, we will say thank you and entrust God to make this true in our lives.